Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 534. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 880 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2021, Farm Girl Flowers. Farm Girl Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting more than 20 U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $9 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgirlflowers.com. Our first sponsor thank you goes to Rody, an on-demand delivery company offering affordable same-day and scheduled delivery with a network of friendly local drivers who handle each delivery with care and one-on-one support from a designated account manager Rody guarantees a smooth and reliable delivery experience from pickup to delivery. Sign up for your first delivery at roadie.com slash slowflowers and use the promo code slowflowers, that's one word, to get $5 off. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm sharing the audio recording of a November 20th panel that I moderated for the annual Tilth Conference, produced by the Tilth Alliance, a Seattle-based organization that works in community with farmers, gardeners, and eaters in Washington State to build a sustainable, healthy, and equitable food future. The conference planners invited Slow Flowers to propose a presentation, and of course we wanted to bring the conversation of flower farming to this mostly food-focused agricultural event. For the panel title, I proposed Relocalizing Flowers, a fantastic phrase I borrowed from a session I moderated earlier this summer for the Phipps and Penn State Extension Summer Short Course, and I pitched the following. There is a heightened interest in local and seasonal flowers as an economic opportunity for farmers and florists alike, fueled by the Slow Flowers Movement. Our panel of Pacific Northwest local flower experts will discuss how the audience can participate in relocalizing our flowers. Each panelist represents a role along the continuum, including those who grow, sell, and design with flowers. The panel discusses best practices for the current consumer climate and answers questions about the progressive momentum that's changing attitudes around local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers. Well, I got the yes, and I put out a call to Slow Flowers members in the Seattle area, and I'm so pleased that the people you'll hear today agreed to participate. I'm pleased with the panel's diversity of expertise and what they had to share. Let's jump right in, and you can meet them. Brad Seabee of the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, Hannah Morgan of Fortunate Orchard, Sarah Wagstaff of Suat Farm and Flowers, and Tammy Myers of First and Bloom and Laura Bloom. You can find the full bios and social media links for each of these talented members in our show notes for episode 534. You can find that at deborahprinzing.com. There you can also watch video of our presentation and download a PDF of our PowerPoint slides. We shared two short videos from the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market Farm to Florist series in our presentation, which you'll also find in the show notes. Let's jump right in and get started. I'm going to just introduce our speakers to the left of me, to your right. First, I want to introduce Brad Seabee. Brad is the general manager of the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farm-to-florist producers cooperative based in Seattle. He oversees administration, operations, general and financial management, strategic planning, execution, as well as the market sales and customer relationships. The Seattle Wholesale Growers Market is a farmer-owned cooperative committed to, to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. Its mission is to create a sustainable living for its Pacific Northwest member farms by promoting their vibrant and diverse products to the floral industry. All year round, the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market brings the best flowers in the Pacific Northwest 
to the marketplace. To Brad's left uh, is Sarah Wagstaff. Hi, Sarah. And your bio is on a different drive. Here we go. <laughs> Sarah Wagstaff is the owner of Suat Farm and Flowers, based in Burlington, Washington. Uh, she is the farmer and owner, um, and I would call her a farmer florist. Home to not only a no-till urban farm in the hub of Skagit Valley, uh, Suat is also a Hugel Culture demonstration garden and educational workspace and full-service floral studio. Suat, S-U-O-T, stands for small units of time. As Sarah says, we know that we aren't able to accomplish everything we want in one day, but little by little, we will get there together. I think of that so often when I'm frustrated. Since 2015, she has committed to providing her customers, clients, and community with the mindfully grown flowers, fresh local bouquets, and uniquely stunning arrangements in compostable and recyclable packaging. She's proud to be a local woman-owned business. Her flowers are 100% locally grown in Washington, and she strives to host, promote, and carry other women artists and makers in her retail studio. To Sarah's left and your right is Tammy Myers. Tammy is a floral designer and owner of Laura Bloom, an online e-commerce and marketing platform that represents florists aligned with the values of supporting local flower farms and offering foam-free designs. The platform serves as a one-stop shop for customers to order local floral delivery, while participating florists commit to providing great customer service, high-quality foam-free designs, and a minimum of 80% American-grown floral ingredients. And Tammy and our next guest, our next presenter, um, Hannah Morgan, will be giving some floral demos, and they will describe what that term foam-free means, which may not mean anything yet to you, but you'll, you'll learn quickly. Uh, so our um, last person I want to present to Tammy's left and your right is Hannah Morgan. Hannah is owner and lead designer of Fortunate Orchard, a floral studio based in Seattle's Seward Park neighborhood. Hannah holds a BFA degree in one hand and a pair of printing shears in the other. I love that. Her designs are deeply rooted in the seasons of the Pacific Northwest, and she sources primarily from the West Coast, often from the Fortunate Orchard Garden, steps away from her work table. Thanks for putting up with me while I read those. I'm Deborah Prinzing. I'm um, an instigator, a collaborator, a journalist, and um, founder of Slow Flower Society, which is um, a national collective of people who care about sustainable flower farming and sustainable floristry. And our goal is to connect more consumers with the source of their flowers. So I'll just have a few slides at the beginning and then we'll turn it over to our presenters. So flowers, our goal is to inspire the floral industry and its consumers and professionals through outreach and education, highlighting benefits of local seasonal and domestic flowers. All of our presenters are local members of the Slow Flower Society. This is a really helpful snapshot, the state of local flowers. Just to give you an idea of what we're, what we're working on, what's the landscape? 80% of cut flowers sold in the U.S. are imported mostly from South America, from Ecuador and Colombia. Of course, they're coming from Europe, they're coming from Asia as well. But this is really the, the David and Goliath story of domestic flower farms. Um, but the good news is that the number of domestic flower farms is increasing. And every, um, five, every five years, there's a um, USDA floriculture census. And from 2007 to 2012, and from 2012 to 2017, there was a 16% increase in the number of farms reporting that they're growing summer all of their acreage in flowers. And we have some new flower farmers here today, so that underscores that. Um, and I'll show you a couple slides just to snapshot the USDA, USDA reports. And also we know that not every, not, this is a self-reporting uh, survey, so there's a lot of farms that don't even report. So I take her, uh, encouragement to know that there are definitely more than 5,900 farms in the U.S. growing cut flowers. USDA also did a study on small-scale farms and value-added crops. And floriculture is the number one most profitable value-added crop on small-scale farms. And that is for farms producing under 100,000 in wholesale sales, so basically every farm. Um, <laughs> even uh, the flower, flower culture even um, outpaced uh, things like uh, livestock. So we know that American consumers are asking about the origins of all products, including flowers. Here's just a snapshot of that census. The report, the census was in 2017, the most recent, the report did not come out until 2019. 
but you can see that the growth was 16% um, in the, the last census, and then in the current census. Actually, it's 6,700 farms now that have reported cut flowers and cut floral greens. Um, I was part of a floral industry survey uh, with Floris uh, a couple years ago with Floris Review Magazine, a reader survey, and um, this was a question that we asked, um, are your customers interested in locally grown and American-grown flowers? And this was uh, before the pandemic, 57% of florists reported that, yes, there are more farmer florists in my market than ever. My customers are interested in locally grown flowers, and I'm changing the way I do business to put more emphasis on local flowers. And we'll hear about that today from our florists. Last year, Slow Flowers participated in the National Gardening Survey, which is an omnibus uh, survey of over uh, 2,500 households in the U.S., mainly asking about purchasing habits and practices in the home and garden space, but we added a few questions about cut flowers. The report it was really encouraging to create a baseline so that we can now uh, go back and ask this question every year. 58% uh, of people said that buying local flowers is very or somewhat important to them. 57% said that buying American grown is somewhat or very important to them. And of course, in our own state, we had an initiative a few years ago uh, promoting Washington flowers. And so you may see this logo. I think, Sarah, you still use this logo, don't you? Frequently. Great. Hashtag Washington flowers or Washington grown? Washington grown and local flowers make life better. <laughs> local flowers make life better. So there's a floral continuum that touches everyone from the grower to the designer to the consumer. And uh, we really want to talk about that today. And so I've invited these amazing presenters to join with us. And I first want to turn the mic over to Brad Seavey. We're hoping to show some videos. We're going to have to bounce over to YouTube in order to, to do that. So thank you so much, Brad. Thank you, Deborah. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us here today. Um, as Deborah mentioned, I'm the general manager of uh, Seattle Wholesale Growers Cooperative. Uh, we are all farmer-owned. We have 15-member farms that have the cooperative, and they range from uh, farms up near Bellingham, clear down to central Oregon, down the Eugene area. So we have quite a diverse uh, range of growing conditions and microclimates available, which is really wonderful for all of our different grower farms. Um, as Deborah mentioned, you know, part of our mission as a cooperative is to make sure that our farms are sustainable and can make a sustainable living. And so the cooperative works with all the farms to help move and sell their products. And the cooperative was formed 10 years ago, and it was originally down in Georgetown off of Airport Way in an old brewery, and outgrew that location, and we moved over to a larger warehouse in Georgetown right now where we're currently located. And we're actually sharing a space with another large wholesaler in the area. Uh, we kind of have a conjoined warehouse area. So it's very central to the flower market here for the florists in the Seattle area. And so we have a, a strong customer base that we've built over the past 10 years. So we have quite a diversity of product. We do feature uh, crops that are seasonally appropriate because the Northwest obviously has growing conditions that are very unique to the area. There's certain crops that can be grown here in the Pacific Northwest that you can't even grow in California. Uh, California is one of the next largest flower-producing regions here in the United States, uh, followed by Washington and then Oregon, pretty much. So um, we have a strong diversity of products that are offered um, seasonally, uh, say with the frosts and freezes, that brings stuff out, but we're just finishing up a lot of the fall season with the mums, and we're moving into a lot of the evergreens and other textural elements that we have for the holiday seasons at this point in time. Um, but in the seasons, um, we offer quite, quite a large selection a lot of our farms are a combination of small growers, and we have some larger farms that have quite a large acreage. And as Deborah mentioned earlier, um, you know, selling through floriculture is a high profitable product, and so you can get a lot better margins and, and sell more product that has a higher value than you can oftentimes on edibles. So what we like to do, and some farms like to do, is even incorporate some floriculture along with your agriculture because there's a lot of benefits to doing that because a lot of times a lot of your flowering crops are beneficial for your agriculture because they help bring in pollinators and other beneficial insects and bees and so forth so it's a really nice conjoining effort in fact a lot of our farms originally started out as um, growing 
you know, edible crops primarily. And then as they started growing, getting into it and going to uh, farmers markets and selling their product, um, they would bring bouquets or cuts to it. And many of them found out over time that at the end of the day at the farmer's market, they'd sold most all of their flowers, but only portions of their vegetables. So they were becoming more profitable selling their flowers and their vegetables. So several of them have actually transi transitioned over just selling 100% flowers now and growing forth and converted all their acreage. And they're continuing to expand their farms by leasing more spaces or buying more farms over time uh, to increase their floral production. So it's been really beneficial for uh, a lot of our growers uh, to have the market. Collectively, as a cooperative, the market can actually do more for an individual member than you can as yourself. Everybody knows farming is very um, challenging, it has a lot of time requirements, and when you're at a farmer's market or trying to make sales contacts and sales leads for things, you're not able to be out in the field growing your crops or harvesting or doing those things that make the most sense for you. So by having a cooperative, collectively the groups of all the members uh, can benefit from that by having a unified sales team and sales force. So our market's open uh, five days a week, uh, 6 a.m. to 1 p.m., and we sell primarily to the floral trades, but we've also expanded uh, ours to the retail public. So we do sell to the public on Tuesdays and Fridays, for example, from uh, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., and we charge a 30% markup additional because we want to protect our wholesale uh, customers. And so typically, um, the floral customers come early in the morning, they get the first pick and best selection, and then our, we get products all the time during the week and shipments that our growers bring in to restock at the market, so it's always fresh material, which is another advantage of buying local because oftentimes flowers that are shipped in from outside areas have been packaged and sitting in boxes for days and days, and they're not the freshest cut. Most of our flowers, when they come to the market, have many of them been cut within 24 hours of arriving at the market, so they're very fresh. And of course, they're, they're processed immediately, put out on the floor, and then we have coolers there where we store them. So it's a different way of presenting at the market. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a nice feel um, for customers to come in. It's a great experience where they can actually see and touch and smell the flowers. And the other benefit, a lot of local flowers, you have the ability to grow colorful product that doesn't ship very well. And those flowers actually have a lot of great benefit because a lot of those uh, have greater fragrance. And so many of the roses and other flowers that are bred to be grown commercially in South America or Africa or other countries, they've been bred for durability and shipping. And a lot of those have lost their fragrance and their essence, basically. So having locally grown product that's unique, and again, there's a strong demand for the local market for a lot of items like that. So. Uh, the market, um, as I mentioned, really has a strong following. It offers a variety of channels for selling. Um, again, we have uh, we sell primarily to event florists, um, studio florists, and retail florists, for example. Then we also have um, other designers that do homes and settings. We have real estate people that purchase from us. We have restaurants. Uh, a lot of uh, Different service places will purchase flowers from us wholesale for their things. So there are a lot of different channels through there. We also have uh, grocery channels, so we sell through mass merchants as well. And so there's different opportunities for growers to sell depending on volumes and different crops we're producing through these different sales channels as well as the public operations too. So uh, we just have a variety of sales channels that we can sell that same product through that if you're as a single farmer trying to market your product, you're very limited in your outreach because you're out there having to make 17 or 20 different phone calls every week to try to move your product versus having one point of contact where everything's aggregated together at the market. Um, another good benefit of selling through a cooperative is that we really want to make sure that all of our members are successful, so we all work together as a team. There's a lot of collaboration and communication that goes on at the market because it shows a real common theme and thread because all the farmers are highly supportive of the market and the collaboration that they have with the other farms. Um, Aaron McMullen from Raindrop Farms, which is down in, near Corvallis area, you know, one of her comments that she made that, you know, rising tide floats all boats, and that's basically how the collective works with the cooperative, is that all of us together are stronger than one farm individually and able to you know, offer such a diverse range of floral products to the floral trades, uh, grocery, and other consumer market 
um, in one location that works very well. I think that we'll have Hannah show some of the product that she uses from the growers market. Um, my name is Hannah Morgan, and my business is called Fortunate Orchard. I'm a studio florist. Oh, good idea. Thank you, Tammy. Watch your eyes. <laughs> I'm a studio florist, and I have a studio in South Seattle. Uh, it's in my home. I have a garden, a garage, which is my studio, and I work right there. I'm very lucky to be only 10 minutes away from the growers market, which is a very, very large part of my shopping and a huge part of me as a business. I don't think I would be in this business if there wasn't the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, if I didn't have access to local flowers and foliage both through the market and also through different farmers and collectors that I've just uh, built relationships with. So I'm going to let some of the products that I like to use and a lot of these products, for me as a city dweller, I pay people things for things like teasel and uh, snowberry and things that if I had all the time I would go and I would gather it but I don't and so I'm so grateful when I can pay somebody for you know a big twig of lichen <laughs> like, I pay money and so uh, I'm grateful when there are people who are willing to gather these things I mean I use also of course so many cultivated crops but at this time of year in particular, my eye goes to things like this that really in my designs like convey people right to the outdoors and I think that's what people respond to. So I'm gonna try not to make a huge mess. <laughs> I'll have to like get a vacuum after I'm done, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'll just do a little designing as I talk and, and please ask me questions if anything you know, sparks in you with any of these materials. Um, so, I am working here in this vessel, as Deborah mentioned, foam-free is a term that has become, oh, thank you so much, Tammy, for being very helpful. Got it? Her yeah, really? You could have put in the hot spot. Thank you. Um, so foam-free is the new standard, I think, for floral design. For many, many years, people who did floral design used something called foam. There's probably a more fancy word for it, but um, it's this green stuff that probably you're familiar with. So foam has proven to be an ecological disaster, and so now most florists, I think, are moving towards other alternatives. Here I have chicken wire in my vessel and tape, and it works like a charm. It's the way that people did it for years and years before plastics and foam came to dominate so much of our life, and so it's really not hard at all to find alternatives to it. I think in a way I'm lucky that I came to this game relatively recently, kind of you know, maybe 10 years ago. And so I never have used foam. And so for me, this is very instinctual to avoid that. I think for some other floors who have been doing this for a little longer, they've had to come up with different ways to work around habits that they have because they've been in the industry from a time before we realized what the impacts of some of these materials are. And speaking of the ecological elements, what you guys are doing at the growers market circumvents so much of the nasty business of uh, the floral trade that comes from shipping from South America, which is a complicated topic. And you know, I'm not here to well, I kind of am, but you know, uh, for there are many reasons to import flowers, but there are many, many reasons not to. And for me, uh, particularly living in this part of the country, we are so rich and so blessed with some amazing growers. I mean, like I see people uh, on Instagram talking about flowers that they're getting from Italy, from Japan, and they do not compete with what I have access to. Sarah, when you go to Costco, Hannah, or, or yeah. Hannah, sorry, yeah. when you go to Costco, like do you, when you see those flowers, or is that kind of? It does not speak to me. <laughs> yeah, so that was a great point. This woman was asking, you know, if you go to Costco, like, what is your impression of the flowers that you see there? And for me, they do not speak to me. And I, again, I don't think I would be doing this if that was the, you know, palette that I had to choose from. And I think that was is a big part of why people respond when they get arrangements from growers, I mean, from designers like us who are using local flowers, is that a lot of people haven't seen them yet or don't aren't aware of what is available to them. It's, it's unique. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is to, to a lot of people because they're more used to, like, the FTD style flowers. Right. And then when you see, like, the luminous blooms that are coming out of Gonzalo's Farm or Everyday Flowers or any of uh, the growers at the market 
but there are people all over this part of the country that are growing these blooms that when you see them, you can't turn back, you know? I mean, right now we're getting stuff from California, which I'm appreciative of, but you just, we're all just like waiting until the hellebores come back. We're very lucky here that there is a very short season where there's no like flower flowers. Um, and that's like from now, I would say until February, uh, when that first frost hits until February. But in the meantime, I use California flowers and also I use things like this, you know, that can be a stand-in if I'm doing a restaurant account or something where it's a little less traditional and people aren't depending on a bloom to be there. I can use all sorts of different, uh, you know, visual elements to represent that mass and that, you know, visual interest that you get from a flower. You have a question? Yes, absolutely. Thanks. That's a great point. She's asking, shopping seasonally, are you more creative? And for me, I absolutely respond creatively by those constraints, to those constraints that being seasonal brings upon me. And also, I just get so excited, you know? I mean, I'm excited when it's time for the lichen branches or when, you know, the next thing happens. It's like every couple months, you know, I walk onto the floor at the growers market, I'm like, oh, it's here, you know? And it's funny because you'd think I would know it was coming, but every year I'm surprised, like, oh, I forgot about that. So, uh, so it's exciting. Gosh, the most unusual element I've used in a design. Actually, today, there's a small wedding happening on Capitol Hill at a bike shop. And this was one of those very um, dreamy situations where the, um, the person who's getting married said, just whatever you want, just have fun. <laughs> and uh, they were really into the idea of being very seasonal and uh, doing things that doing something that is really reflective of our where we are now. So a big part of their arrangements today, um, I use reindeer moss. Is that what it is? The bright, bright green moss you see on the east side of the mountains. So um, my husband fishes, and so when we go out there on public lands, I go <laughs> responsibly, like, blow, you know, things are blown down. I get these little chunks of bright green moss that just, like, stay perfect forever. And so I used a huge amount of this chartreuse moss in these arrangements. I'm going to post it later after they see it. So that, oh, I thought, that's pretty unusual. Um, and I think even, like, teasel is getting less unusual because you guys are stocking it. But for a long time, it's like, this is the stuff that drives you crazy when you're, like, trying to hike near water or whatever. But I think it's a great, it's a great um, element. Snowberries are also, this time of year, these are cultivated by um, jello mold. Is that right? Yeah. And so they're in the Skagit Valley. And, um, and so this is like this amazing bright, bright pop that you can get at this time of year that aren't, is not a flower, but who needs flowers when you have this, right? <laughs> I have a question about the market. Is there kind of like a minimum um, quantity that the growers would have to provide in order to be a member? The question was, is there a minimum amount a grower has to provide to become a member? Um, no, there really isn't, but to be a sustainable, you need to have enough product to make it worth your travel and time and fuel and gas. And if you live across the water, you've got to count your ferry to costs and so forth like that. So having you know enough volume of product to bring to the market to be able to sell, you have to be a consideration. So the way the market structured as a member the commission rate is much less than it is if you're a consigner. So we do consigned growers who are not members, who, who have interest, could become potential members. In fact, we call those provisional members. So if we have somebody that's interested in joining the, the market or cooperative, we typically require them to sell for at least one of the summer or spring growing seasons at the market to make sure there's a good fit because we want to make it sure it works and for both sides or both people. So those people sell as a consignment, which is that a higher rate of commission, and then once if they decide that in that period is successful for both parts, because we want to make sure it's mutually beneficial, then they can, you know, ask to become a member of the market, and then I say then they get voted in by the board, and then after that, then they pay a $2,000 membership fee, and then they're part of the market. That fee is refundable when you leave the market as well, so it's held in a, a trust fund account. You bet. 
And I would say different wholesalers have different protocols. This yep. is the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market. Yeah, yeah. There are other wholesalers that have different arrangements they do as well. Hannah, tell us what you just put into that awesome this, piece. This is um, a dried protea. So this is a California product. And um, I don't have a fresh one with me, but it's pink or white and big and beautiful orb. And now they've figured out that we also let them dry. So this is one of the dried products that they have at the growers market um, that, that this time of year, it's like a big hoarding time for me <laughs> where I get all the dried stuff that I can so that I have it to use through the lean months. How's it looking in the front? It's hard to tell. It's beautiful. Oh, good. <laughs> it's hard designing backwards. Yeah. <laughs> I think, do I, am I almost out of time? Yeah, you can... I didn't know if you wanted to talk about some of the other ingredients you brought, too, just yeah. to highlight, and then we'll have Sarah come up. Yeah, that sounds great. So um, this is from my garden. It's just a sedge grass, which, you know, I get a lot of my materials also from nurseries. And so this grows in my garden like crazy, and it's turned out to be a great um, kind of like... From a design perspective, it kind of creates a, a wispy element that I think is really nice and it kind of softens the lines. So I like using that to kind of break up the vessel, kind of create a little bit of a wispy wild thing going on here. Um, I also just used this bright orange Ilex berry. Uh, I don't know if this is from Oregon, but... It, That's no. from up in Skagit as well. Oh, okay. It's right. from a Choice Bold Farm. Oh, this is Choice. Yeah, so this is um, this amazing bright element at this time of year and also lasts forever and ever. I have a question. When I use berries, often they fall off. Do you have like an optimal temperature you keep for that? Or do you have a trick for that? I don't have a cooler, so I keep my things outside. Is that true for Ilex berries? They fall off or just, it kind of also will depend on the variety that you're using of berry. Some things hold really well. Like Ilex usually hangs on pretty well. And I think that when you're using different materials, especially if you're like foraging things, it's good to just experiment a little bit and like pick some and, um, you know, put it outside, keep it indoors, see how long it lasts so that when you're using it in design, you don't end up getting surprised. Um, and yeah, and so these are just some seed pods that I got from my garden. It's like a sort of a sunflower little thing that grows there, but I actually like it way better dead. So I always <laughs> save it. The birds get some of it, and I get some of it. Yeah. I was wondering, I don't know if I was like jumping again. I had a question for Sarah. Yeah, I think I'm about to wrap up. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah. Hannah, thank you so much. That's stunning. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. If anyone has any questions after, or did you have a quick question? I do. Yeah. What would you sell this for? Oh my gosh. Um, well, <laughs> like to make a profit as yeah, a yeah. business owner. Yeah. Well, my so I've decided in my business, like my arrangements are kind of standard by size. I don't like I don't want to um, lose money, obviously. But I've learned not to be like, well, this costs one dollar and da da. Like I look at it more now. Um, like it's kind of more elevated, right? Like as a piece, not just the, the the parts. So something like this would probably be about one fifty. And something like this would probably be more applicable um, in a like restaurant setting, or I probably wouldn't make this unless yeah, unless somebody specifically I knew they were like ready for something kind of far out. You know, I would probably include flowers, um, but yeah, this size would be about 150 for me. Yeah, thank you so much. And I will encourage you to all go to Fortunate Orchard website because you can look through how Hannah has her designs marketed in different by size. And uh, I think there's three main design yeah. choice sizes that you use. Yeah, three different sizes for base arrangements. Oh, I mean, it's such a mess. Well, Sarah's going to come up and um, talk a little bit. And then after Sarah, Tammy will do a little design. So we'll, we'll have another design spot. But I've got your slides up here for you. Thank you. Hello, I'm shorter than everyone. <laughs> Closer to the ground. <laughs> Um, I'm Sarah Wagstaff, and I am a farmer and florist, and um, I am going to talk a little bit about why flowers. So I don't know everyone's background of uh, what experience you have with flowers, or growing flowers, or eating flowers, or whatever, but something about today made you come into our room, and there's some interest there. And um, I expect if you're at a TILF conference, you're probably interested in food and food production, and so flowers might be a little bit of a, of a stretch. 
And um, so I really wanted to talk about that why. Why would you introduce them into your, into your production or into your home or into your um, growing space? And um, what's important to me is um, conveying, in, uh, I guess I would say, value, right? Anything that we produce should have value, either to us or to our farm or to the, the customer that's hopefully purchasing it. Um, and so things in, in the U.S. are um, conveyed with money, right? If you spend money, then something has value. And I really balk at that because <laughs> there's so many things in my life that have value and meaning that don't cost anything. The relationships that I've built with people, the um, love that I feel for myself or f- with others, and that those things are really hard to convey with a character. Or with a bowl of lettuce. And yes, we do have to eat, but it's not quite the same meaning and connection. But when you hand somebody a single stem, that's impactful. No one ever is like, oh, no thanks, not hungry. They're like, for me? And it makes that connection of, you think I'm valuable? You you think that I'm important? And Or it brings up a conversation of, what is this for? Maybe there's a, an important ritual. Maybe this is a milestone in your life. Um, I've thought about this over the last few years as I've been a florist transitioning from not just farming but also incorporating floristry and noticing that every single milestone in our life is documented with flowers. Every holiday has a specific flower or greenery or crop associated with it. And those are important and impactful as like marking the days and the months and the weeks of our life together and ultimately our death, right? Plants have a life cycle of this seed germinating and waiting underground or a bulb waiting to to come up and have its time to shine. And there's definitely those moments where we're feeling robust and feeling abundant. And the name of my farm is Small Units of Time. And so feeling that bloom. And then there's a time where it's just not happening today. And there's miles of weeds. And there's something that just never sells at the farmer's market. And then there's that moment where it's a dead seed pot. And you're like, I can relate. I can relate to that moment. (laughs) Right? And that's what flowers do for us. So whether it's at your farm stand or whether it's just in your yard and it's a weed and you're going to stick it in the little tiny bud vase next to your toilet. And every time you're in there, you feel like... I matter. I'm important. And I have a connection to something that's so much larger than just today and just those miles of weeds. But I have a connection to other humans. And I feel like humans are important. I, f- I think so often we're reminded that sometimes it doesn't feel like humans are important. But I feel like humans are important. It doesn't matter what age you are, what color you are, what you look like, what you matter and your feelings matter and so maybe the flowers that you're purchasing or growing are just for you and that's great that is totally enough and if that's where you're at do it please plant a flower please pick a flower please pick some weeds out of somebody else's yard (laughs) with permission um and if you are ready to make a connection with somebody else and bring that into their lives and participate in those rituals for them Maybe you're the one that's designing a condolence arrangement where somebody has just lost the most important person in their life. You get to be a little um, gifter of nature, reminding them, hey, they were once a seed, and they had their bloom, and this is their moment where they're transitioning into something that is still beautiful, but is different than what we think of as, you know, the teleflora arrangement (laughs) that is always everlasting, a kind of plasticized weird thing that isn't relatable, right? But the local connection, the seasonal connection to the tangibility is something that I want to talk about today. So that's who I am. This is a little photo of my space. I collect all the dried bits and bobbles. I hoard them too, and I hopefully share them. Um, but we grow a little bit of everything. We grow year-round, and um, I try to utilize as much as I can in each of my design arrangements. One little trick that I do um, to make that connection of and the cycle of life is in every single arrangement that I create, I try to create something in bud, add something in bloom, and something that's passed. And so it has that relatability of whatever stage you're at or experiencing, or maybe it's just a small unit of time, maybe it's not overwhelming, 
it's just here and now, but you can see that there will be something else, right? There will be a change. Um, we have a floral studio that's a retail space, and so that's one way in which we engage with our customers in person. Um, even we have, we're celebrating our, our <laughs> one-year anniversary of having a retail space, so not optimal time to be, <laughs> to be starting a physical business, <laughs> interacting with other humans. But it has shown us so many beautiful connections that despite sickness, despite illness and death and loss and grief and currently we're experiencing flooding, <laughs> all the state of the craziness of the world, people still want flowers because it reminds them of something else. It reminds them of their grandmother. It reminds them of planting seeds with their kid. And in kindergarten where you stick a little bean and a little paper cup and something happened, it's magical. And so um, if we can remind people of that and connect people with that, that's, that's my goal. End of it. <laughs> the small units of time accomplished. I've done that. Um, so we have that retail space where we connect with people there. It's also our workspace where we create arrangements and we design weddings and um, funerals, arrangements and things. Um, we also have a website where things are, um, you can purchase or interact with and um, sign up for workshops year-round. We mostly do a lot more workshops in the fall and winter when the, when the garden is resting quite a bit. Um, that's a good time for us to connect. I think people feel that with the holidays coming up of we want to gather and we want to be together and how could we do that safely. And sometimes you can't be together in person, but you can send flowers and that reminds them of, oh, I am there in person. I send a little bit of nature and a little bit of nature in you and there's a little bit of nature in me and there's that connection that we have with each other. We also sell wholesale. And so that provides other local florists in our area with our product. And so they can experience those things that are fresh and in season and maybe a little weird and maybe a little awesome. And we think they're worth stopping and appreciating. And so we include those in our arrangements as well as make them available to wholesalers. Um, right now we're in the midst, I'm not sure if that's just going to the same slide or is this a different slide? Okay. Um, right now we're in the midst of our workshop season. We've just be begun um, uh, hosting a few of those and we'll continue to host. We do um, a flower arranging workshop because I think people kind of forget after you're seven years old and you are making your little daisy chain and dandelion bracelets at the playground, you forget that as an adult that would be fun and cool to do now too. Um, I think we just tell ourselves, oh, I'm not creative or oh, I don't, I don't need that. But when you do it, <laughs> you're reminded, I do need that. I do appreciate just stopping and playing with flowers. And at the end of it, every single person in the class is just like, I can breathe. I feel good. I feel like I've just done something that's important. And what it was is just playing with flowers. So it reminds you of the importance of that, of mental health and social health and emotional health. And um, maybe it's just at home with your family or just with yourself or maybe it's with your employees. But stopping and taking a moment and saying, hey, we're just going to like put these in a paper cup. However you want to do it, let's practice it. And if that's a little ritual that you do every day, just with the weeds that you collected on the way to the barn or on the way to your um, back door or whatever, it means something. And maybe that's your little like uh, offering, offering to yourself. Oh, hey, I stopped and I, I understood what was happening in the world today. Or maybe I didn't understand it, and yet I persevered. I connected, I tried, I appreciated, and those are the things that I find bring value to my life. Um, I want to see if there's any questions. I think sometimes what I talk about seems a little bit um, far out or maybe <laughs> a little frou-frou, and I, I'm okay with that. So if you have questions for me or you want to ask more about what we do or... Um, if I could expound on something, I know you had a question. We'll start over there. Go ahead. Yeah. Could be it, whatever. <laughs> um, I guess I had a question. I mentioned about your use of, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, unicultures, um, and as well how with your studio you interact with the wholesale outlets you're selling through, as well as do you buy in product from other local farms to fulfill your needs for workshops, things like that? Great question. She had a couple there. First one was hugelkultur, which is a German word meaning mound or forest, um, sorry, <laughs> forest mound or forest culture. 
Um, so basically what we do is a no-till form of gardening, and so instead of using a tractor to flip the earth and to, they call it breaking ground, I really want to work with the earth, and so I want to add things and layer things and um, build soil and build relationship with the thing that makes everything grow. <laughs> so we don't till, we just add layer upon layer, and then culture is um, a form where you add quite a bit of woody debris, and so we live near a hillside and in a forest, uh, you know, Washington, where we live, is basically a rainforest, and so we have a lot of windfall every fall and winter. We have a lot of debris, we have a lot of garden cleanup, and so we mound that with the biggest things on the bottom and layering smaller and smaller and smaller until finally on the top we can either top dress with compost, soil, dirt, uh, wood chips, whatever you have available. We're a big proponent of use what you have, start where you are, do what you can. So no need to buy in product to cultivate this, but if it's a useful thing to um, break down woody debris that would otherwise be burned or you'd have to pay to... Um, to uh, dispose of, you can take that and decompose it. And so by layering the wood on the bottom, it provides a number of different benefits to plants. Um, if you've heard the term waterlogged, you know that water absorbs water and is a um, pretty good filtration system. So it slows the release of water so the plants have that available for longer. Um, it provides a microclimate because you have a larger surface area. So something on this side is a little bit different temperature than something on this side. Plus, it's not a flat growing space, so you just maximize all of that growing space by amplifying it. Um, and then you have that slow release of nutrients. As, it's, as the wood is decomposing, it's providing nutrients long-term to the plants. It's not just a quick shot of nitrogen, like miracle Grow or some other product that would be available for three weeks, and then you test, and it's basically gone. But if you have wood and um, a bunch of different layers of things, those will slowly decompose, providing nutrients for years to come instead of just a quick shot. So we use both of those, no-till and culture. Sometimes they can be synonymous, but not always. Um, we use a couple different uh, methods to do our row crops. Um, we call it basically lasagna gardening, where you take cardboard and then grass clippings and cardboard and then leaves and then cardboard and just layering up like that. It basically creates an apartment complex for all the decomposers. They're not going to sit in the muck and just stay there, and if it's already decomposed, they're going to move on. So we want to create habitat for all the decomposers so they can add tilth and, and um, fertility to our soil. The other question was, how do I interact with wholesalers, and do I purchase in product to supplement? Is that right? So um, we sell wholesale. I don't typically buy wholesale. I try to provide and grow 100% of what we design with. On occasion, if I have a, a unusual request or they wanted a very specific color palette, then I source as locally as possible. So that's usually and preferably within Skagit where we live because there's an amazing amount of local producers specifically where I live. I feel really lucky. Um, and then if I can't, then uh, Seattle is as far out usually as I source. So 100% of what we do is within Washington. Um, and then we do ship outside of Washington anywhere in the U.S., and um, yeah, we, we grow a wide range of crops. I focus mostly on perennials and trees and shrubs and grasses and vines. We do a teensy bit of annuals, but I don't do a lot of seed starting yearly because we're not turning and burning our fields. They are in this permanent bed that is established and providing tilth for five years, and so I want the plants that I'm growing in there to have nutrients for that long. Great question. Anybody else? Yeah. And anyone probably could answer this and think to it. Um, a little bit about, like, I'm just thinking, like, locally grown versus growing local or native, and, like, how much that you're using of native plants in, in your work. Yeah, great question. I um, grow and sell locally to my region, right? Um, and then talking about native plants is something, a plant that lives naturally without having to be cultivated, or you are cultivating it intentionally. And we do both. We um, currently live on half of an acre, very, very urban uh, space, and so our little hillside has a couple little native plants that are still there, but mostly has been developed. But recently we purchased um, a tract of land, 66 acres, and a third of which is in conservation easement, and so it's just wild lands that's protected forever. And the other part is still very natural and wild and hasn't been cultivated. Um, and so we do harvest a number of those native plants like sword fern and sola and, 
Kinnick-Nick, and um, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of different evergreens and all different things that are wonderful as cuts. Um, to answer your question earlier, the stage of harvest with berry crops is probably the most important, followed by the cultivar. So some native plants are great for cutting, and they have berries. Um, but the stage in which you harvest is the most important because as it senesces and as it changes its um, hormonal state, it will drop its leaves and also drop its berries. So if you catch it before that, it will drop the leaves without you having to harvest it, but before it's dropped the berry. Speaking of marketers, Tammy Myers is uh, just uh, such a versatile, creative, and I will... Tammy, do you want to come up here to speak, or are you going to stay there? I'll just stay right here. Okay, I'll move the slides for you then. This is an introduction to... Uh, one of, I don't think Tammy has this homepage anymore, but I love it so much because she had the tagline from America with love when she started her first in bloom platform, and I, I always thought that was a great message. So, thank you, Tammy. Hi, everybody. Um, here, I'll take my mask off. Um, so, I'm going to do my version a little bit different. I'm going to kind of tell a story, um, just, you know, how I've been in the floral industry. Um, in 2014, I opened a local floral business in the Issaquah, Sammamish, Eastside area. Um, I had recently left the corporate world. I have a heavy e-commerce background. I worked for a company um, that you all would know uh, for online travel. And um, I had burnout. Um, I had a young son, and I had always wanted to have a small business. And when I was in college... I worked at a flower shop part-time, so, you know, I liked flowers. I do not have an agricultural or horticultural background, so everything you see up until today is self-taught. Um, I did come from eastern Washington, so, um, you know, I always hung around uh, the farming community, but nothing hardcore for me. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I have done everything from weddings, uh, local delivery, business subscriptions, corporate events, and uh, I always got a lot of questions from people, hey, I need to ship or send flowers to somebody in you know, Washington, D.C. Do you know of a good florist? I'm like, no. They're like, I don't want to go to the typical online retailer that we all you know, know about. <laughs> And they, they're like, I want flowers like yours. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I'll see if I can hunt somebody down online. And, um, and then, you know, as I grow to be a part of this floral community, I start to talk with fellow florists. And they, too, are like, I wish, you know, people love my products, but I wish that I could. Um, uh, it's hard to become noticed online. And we all know about, you know, uh, Google Ads and placement and Facebook and all those um, complicated things that are very expensive. And so I decided to uh, pivot, and I thought that I would build a mobile app called Laura Bloom. And I got way in over my head. It became very expensive. And when I realized that I wasn't going to be able to afford the mobile app development, um, I decided to pivot again, and I just built an online site. And I used the Shopify platform, but I, I, I did build it myself. Um, I'm fortunate to have a lot of, um, you know, consultants in kind of the online world that I can talk to when I need to. And what I wanted to create was this platform. It's a direct-to-consumer online platform where, like Deborah said earlier, the consumer... Um, can come to the site. They, it's driven by zip code and area. And I think uh, one of the slides kind of broke down some of the areas where I have florists, um, but it is driven by zip code. And you should be able to, as a consumer, go there. Uh, florists then list their arrangements, just like you would see from an FTD or a Teleflora. And, but all of the flowers are... Um, they need to be a minimum of 80% uh, USA grown. Um, and I say 80% because sometimes things, it gets, like this time of year is really hard for us as florists because um, the customer wants fresh product to be, you know, to purchase or to have sent to a loved one. 
And so we still have to deliver on that. But we have the wonderful growers market that we, you know, we know where to get um, all the products that we need. So uh, I launched in January of 2020, right before COVID. And, you know, everything tanked completely. And so this, can you go back to the pop-up slide? Mm -hmm. And while we're, there was no business, um, I was like, I got to generate some business somehow because I want to be able to, I, I needed to pay at least, you know, cover my expenses that I had. How can I do this and how can I help the florists that are on the platform? And, um, and so something that a new florist would do to gain traction and visibility in the community that they're in is they would do a pop-up. And so I partnered with some local coffee shops. Um, I partnered with Woods Coffee and another one um, in uh, the Bellevue, Redmond area called Cypress Coffee. And they allowed for me to set up uh, pop-ups. And then I had, and Sarah was actually one of the florists. And so at each one of those different locations, I featured um, a different florist. And we sold flower bouquets. And it wasn't a ton of money, but we were able to help cover some expenses. So after that, um, I noticed, because I pay attention to the analytics on my site, that my traction on the site overall was, it, it had really bumped up. And I think it was because of that two-month concentration of just really being out there that it really helped the, the sales that were online, um, because it had really plummeted during COVID, I'll just be completely honest. Um, and then something really amazing happened. I got a feature on the uh, Biz 425 Business Magazine in December. And that was just like, you know, that was like the cherry on top for the year because it was, it was a bad year. <laughs> anyway, from that this year, I have kind of pulled back in order to make um, expenses uh, to cover my expenses, I have had to step back into the floral space, the design space. So I pulled back my business uh, first in bloom on the east side. It's actually crazy busy right now. Like um, I'm having a difficult time keeping up. And But I also cannot ignore that we do live in an online shipping world. And I really held off on a shippable product for a long time. And I just, finally, I'm like, I just can't ignore this anymore. I gotta figure out how to make this work. So I developed a bouquet that is very similar to the pop-up bouquets that I sold, or that we sold last year. And I wanted people who don't live in the area who couldn't come to a pop-up, I wanted them to be able to experience what local and sustainable is in just a small form, a shippable form. So, um, this week, I actually uh, sent out, um, I partnered, partnered with this local nonprofit um, called Stella Stars, and they raise funds for a, a school in Kenya, and my bookkeeper happens to be the board member, and she asked me if I might like to help raise some funds for this school. And so I was like, yeah, cool, let's make it a shippable product. And so this is the actual Stella Stars bouquet that I sold. And so when you get it, um, it comes like this. And this is a work in progress. So uh, this is not always perfect. And I did open it just to take a peek to see what it looks like. Because <laughs> this is too, it has been in the box for two days. So it come, I try to be very eco-friendly, just like Hannah. I don't use any floral foams at all. I haven't used floral, floral foam for years and years. Hopefully this looks all right. So this is the bouquet. And, um, you know, when you get flowers shipped like this, they're going to look a little weak and limp. Um, but as soon as you re put them in... You recut them and you put them in water and they will rehydrate and come come right back so let's pretend that there's water in this um, 
This again is meant to be uh, the postcard. It kind of gives some little basic instructions because everyone should be able to do this. And then I always try and list where the where the product came from, from the farm. And uh, this time it happens to be Ojeda Farms from the Chehalis Valley. And uh, uh, because we're in the winter, there is a lot that's coming from California. So anyway, everyone should be able to do this. They open it. It's eco-friendly for the most part. It comes in a little eco-fresh wrap. And you can be as much of a florist as you want. You can break it down. You can do whatever you want. But the idea is that you get a little piece of local in your home, at your home from far away. And my ultimate goal for this is to be able to sell this at a major online retailer, which we all know who that is. And some people might not uh, think that's a good idea, but I assure you there are companies out. This isn't going to look beautiful, okay, guys? It looks great, Tammy. <laughs> it, would take, it would take time to make that look like what Hannah said. Like that. Um, and then my ultimate goal for that is that there are companies out there that sell millions and millions of dollars every day, and, but it doesn't represent local and sustainable. And I believe that there should be representation of local and sustainable, just like every other product that is out there on e-commerce. And so that is my goal. Thanks so much for joining us today. Today is December 1st, and you know what that means. It's the day we're opening up ticket sales to the 2022 Slow Flowers Summit, and I couldn't be more thrilled. The fifth Slow Flowers Summit heads to Lower Hudson Valley, located just 45 minutes outside of Manhattan. I'm so excited to welcome you to three days of amazing programming on June 26th through 28th, 2022. You can find all the details at slowflowerssummit.com and you'll be hearing a lot from me in the coming months as we highlight our speakers, the immersive floral program, and two iconic agricultural venues, Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture and the Red Barn at Maple Grove Farm. Registration to the three-day event is $899, including breakfasts, lunches, refreshments, and an opening day welcome cocktail party reception. Slow Flowers members may register for a $50 discount of $849. And if you grab your ticket before the end of the year, before December 31st, you'll enjoy an additional savings of $100 off both the member and general rate. And just a note, the dinner at Blue Hill Restaurant on Monday, June 27th, 2022 is a separately ticketed event, so plan accordingly. You can find all the details at slowflowersummit.com and we will share the links in today's show notes. Our next sponsor thank you goes to the Gardener's Workshop, which offers a full curriculum of online education for flower farmers and farmer florists. Online education is more important this year than ever, and you'll want to check out the course offerings at thegardenersworkshop.com. Well, no pressure if you've been procrastinating, but this is your last chance to take the Slow Flowers annual member survey this week, which closes Friday, December 3rd. You can find the link to our survey in today's show notes. And for those of you who complete the survey and share your name and email address, you will be entered into a drawing for two thank you prizes. Those include complimentary Slow Flowers premium membership for one year, a $249 value, and a free Slow Flowers dinner at Blue Hill Restaurant at Stone Barns, June 27th, 2022, in Pocantico Hills, New York, and that's at the Slow Flowers Summit, a $350 value. Don't miss out. A final sponsor thank you goes to flowerfarm.com. 
Flower Farm is a leading wholesale flower distributor that sources from carefully selected flower farms to offer high-performing fresh flowers sent directly from the farm straight to you. You can shop by flower origin and order flowers and foliage from California, Florida, Oregon, and Washington by using the origin selection tool in your search. It's smarter sourcing, and you can learn more at flowerfarm.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. The Slow Flowers podcast is a member-supported endeavor downloaded more than 790,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show and our long-running podcast, check out all our resources at slowflowerssociety.com and consider making a donation to sustain the Slow Flowers ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers Show and the Slow Flowers Podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more Slow Flowers on the table, one stem, one vase at a time. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. You can learn more about Andrew's work at soundbodymovement.com. Mm-hmm.